Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Time's up for vaccine card holdouts. There's people out there that uh, don't like this. What happens now that the grace period is over and only a QR code will do? Growing demand for a third dose. How British Columbians who receive mix and match vaccines might face trouble if they travel. And a mysterious disappearance. It's been gone too long. RCMP need help cracking a case at risk of growing cold. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us tonight. If you haven't already signed up for your BC vaccine card, Today would be the day to get on that. As of today, your QR code is the only acceptable proof of vaccination to access many non-essential businesses and services here in B.C. Kylie Stanton has more on how enforcement is going and whether the new rules are prompting more people to get their shot. From restaurants and pubs to indoor events. Thank you. Getting in means getting vaccinated. I've made it the screensaver on my smartphone. We proudly sort of flip it out, and I'm all for that. Now, after a two-week grace period, where several alternative proofs of immunization, including the old paper copy, did the trick, only the official version of the BC vaccine card is being accepted. Well, businesses now will be required to check with the app to ensure that the QR code they're being presented is accurate and then verifying that with the ID. You know, it's, it's probably not the first thing you want to be doing, um, but it's the most important thing that we can do right now. And um, so far, it's worked really well. According to the B.C. Health Minister, Adrian Dix, as of Monday morning, more than 3.2 million British Columbians have accessed their B.C. vaccine card, while more than 4.05 million have received at least one dose. And with the new rules in place, that number is only expected to climb. If I'm not vaccinated, I can't go to the campus, to the work, to restaurant, anywhere. I can't go. And I like to eat in restaurants and I can't go there. So I have no choice now but to get a shot. We got the girls' restaurant. But there are some still determined to try and defy the order. Vaccine passports are illegal. On Friday, staff at an Earl's restaurant were forced to flag down police after a group of men refused to display their vaccine cards upon entry. When they were told to leave, a fight ensued. One man was arrested and ticketed under the COVID-19 Related Measures Act. This is called medical tyranny. It's just one example over what appears to be growing tensions over vaccines. According to a survey conducted for the Association for Canadian Studies, more than three in four Canadians hold negative views of those who are not immunized. But no matter how you feel, the rules are the rules. And this one is in place until at least the end of January next year. Our expectation is all businesses will follow uh, the procedures and that the patrons that come will be respectful of the people that are following the rules that the government has laid out. Kylie Stanton, Global News. 
Now, another grim few days as the fourth wave of the pandemic rages on in B.C. There have been 2,239 new cases over the past three days. That breaks down to 876 Saturday, 657 Sunday and 706 today and pushes the cumulative case count to nearly 185,000. There have been 18 new pandemic-related deaths for a total now of 1,940. 303 people are being treated in hospital. 141 are in intensive care. There are currently 6,098 active cases and 80.5% of British Columbians aged 12 and older are now fully vaccinated. A growing number of schools across B.C. are reporting cases of COVID-19, prompting five parent advisory councils on the south coast to call for stronger safety protocols in schools. As John Hua reports, one of the members gives the province a failing grade for how it's handling the situation. From grade school to ground zero. Parents who've watched the number of COVID-19 exposures explode across elementary schools in this province say they've had enough. They have failed. They have failed. They failed in planning a proper start to school. A letter signed by multiple parent advisory groups representing the families of more than 170,000 BC students is calling on the government to do better. We're going public and we are calling out the government. We are calling out our trustees. Among the demands from the district parent advisory councils, the immediate implementation of a mask mandate for students in kindergarten to grade three, limited school gatherings and a return to cohorts, a vaccine mandate for teachers and school staff, a proof of vaccination requirement for parents entering schools, more transparent exposure notifications within a period of five days, and remote learning options for any district facing a high number of exposures. This is clear communication uh, that ought to be taken seriously that both families and teachers are unsatisfied with the safety measures that are in place. BC's ministers of health and education would not go on camera, nor was a response to the letter provided to Global News by deadline. We've been equally frustrated um, by the lack of responsiveness from, you know, from the provincial health office and government, quite, quite honestly. In the meantime, while the province has committed to improving school exposure notifications, the principal of Capilano Elementary sent a letter out on Friday about positive student cases declared by their parents, not Vancouver Coastal Health. To really put things in the hands of local health authorities completely, um, you know, is showing some problematic issues. Families whose fears are being fueled by the lack of safety measures in place to address those who choose to be unvaccinated or are too young to get the shot. Say when it comes to the listening skills of school trustees and those in government, it's another failing grade. John Hua, Global News. All right, you might be curious which communities in our province are seeing the largest number of cases and hospitalizations. Let's bring in Keith Baldry, who loves to crunch those numbers for us <laughs> and take a look at the data. Keith? Yeah, we'll break it down by health authority, so not so much local communities, but the health authority regions in B.C. And there's so many cases over the weekend, Chris, I thought it would be useful to take a look at the regional breakdown. So no surprise, Fraser Health has the most cases over reporting over the weekend at 857 and 42 hospitalizations. The interior next, it's 525 and 28 people going into hospital. The Northern Health Authority is the big concern. 358 cases, 34 hospitalizations, more than Vancouver Coastal, even though Vancouver Coastal has more than three 
three times the population. Vancouver Island continues to lag the other health authorities. Interesting why the North seems to be getting hit hard right now. Low vaccination rates, uh, as you mentioned, 87.7% of the population got one dose. That compares to less than 80% in the entire Northern Health Authority. But many communities in Metro Vancouver have well more than 90% of the population vaccinated. Here I'll tell you some numbers from up north, particularly the Peace River area. Vanderhoof, 68.3%. Burns Lake, 66%. Chetwin, just 61.2%. Dawson Creek, 63.8%. There seems to be an active and determined anti-vaccination movement afoot, particularly in the Peace River area where vaccinations are very low and where we are seeing a significant uptick and increase in hospitalizations and ICU cases. A number of people, 15 as of last week, and there are probably more this week, have had to be medevaced and airlifted down to Metro Vancouver. Simply not enough resources to treat them in the north. That system is stressed, to be sure. Okay, thanks very much, Keith. Well, the confusion and frustration over mixed vaccinations continues for people who receive different vaccines. Now facing a certain, an uncertain future, rather, when it comes to international travel. As Ted Chernecki reports, some of the people who listened to health officials and got the first vaccine available to them are now wondering if their travel options will be limited having any side effects the first or the second shot. As President Biden gets his third dose, travel-starved British Columbians can only look on in envy. Several countries are not accepting Canadians as fully vaccinated if they've had two different vaccines. And come November, the U.S. could be on that not-welcome list as well. A third dose would solve that, but in B.C. you can't get one unless you're medically vulnerable. But you can elsewhere. In Alberta, Saskatchewan and Quebec, People who are in my situation who took a dose of AstraZeneca and a second mRNA shot are being offered a third dose so that they can have two doses of an mRNA so that they can travel internationally. But in BC, that isn't the case. Faced with a small supply of vaccines early on, Canadians were encouraged to mix doses if necessary. The first time you get offered a vaccine, please take it whichever vaccine it is. Because it was in supply, AstraZeneca was the first, followed by a Moderna or Pfizer. Now Canadians who want to travel stateside to see immediate and elderly family can't. Canada chose to use these drugs off-label, so I don't really think it's up to other countries to now bend their rules to accommodate us. What I think is that the people who were advised by the Canadian health authorities to take these mixed vaccines should get some backup so that we have the option to travel internationally. Today was my fourth dose. It works both ways. Canada made this international student from Dubai take two more vaccines so she could study here. So I had taken my Sinopharm vaccine, which is from China, the one uh, from Beijing. So I had taken both the doses from Dubai, but uh, it's not approved by the government here, the Canadian government. Though we're throwing away wasted vaccine doses, someone in my position is not allowed to have a third dose. We reached out to BC's Provincial Health Services Authority to confirm if Moderna vaccines are being thrown out as they expire unused. We didn't hear back before deadline. Ted Chernecki, Global News. All eastbound lanes have now reopened to traffic on the Portman Bridge after a major incident injured two people just after 10 o'clock this morning. This was the scene mid-span after the driver of a stalled pickup truck exited his vehicle and was then struck by a delivery truck that rear-ended his vehicle. That person ended up with serious injuries and the delivery truck driver was also hurt and needed to be extricated by emergency crews. It took most of the day to clear the scene as many commuters were either stuck in the backups or forced to detour. 
B.C. Highway Patrol and the Criminal Collision Investigation Team are handling the case alongside reconstruction services and emergency responders. A Victoria police officer is recovering in hospital tonight after being struck by a vehicle this morning. Vic PD says the incident happened at around 8.30 this morning in the 900 block of Pandora Avenue. The officer was helping out City of Victoria bylaw and was standing next to a police cruiser when he was struck from behind by another vehicle. It turns out that vehicle was stolen just moments before. The driver was arrested on scene. The officer was rushed to hospital with serious but non-life-threatening injuries. We don't believe it was accidental. We had grounds to arrest him for those offenses. Um, what his specific intent was at the time of the incident, still something we're working through. But obviously an incident of great concern for us. We've seen a number of recent assaults on police officers throughout the month of September, something that uh, has a, a great impact on our, our organization and the feeling of our officers in this building. Anyone with more information about the collision is asked to contact the Victoria Police Department. Many students at UBC are struggling to come to terms with a terrible crash that killed two first-year students over the weekend. The pair struck by a vehicle as they walked down the sidewalk. Krista Dow is on the campus where students have, are being offered grief counseling now. Krista. Yeah, Chris, there is just immense grief here on campus today. The UBC Students' Union president tells me they and the university are ready to offer support for students in any way they can, and that includes counseling, peer-to-peer -peer support as students try to deal with this tragedy. One by one, the students on campus pausing at the crash site to pay their respects to the victims the makeshift roadside memorial growing by the hour. Just crossing and then seeing those flowers there was like really sad. I didn't even realize it was this spot. So we're like really hit differently today. The mood, a somber one at UBC as students return to class one day after learning two first year UBC students were killed. Police say the driver of the silver BMW SUV veered off the road early Sunday, striking and killing the 18 year olds. The pair simply walking on the sidewalk. Just such an, an unfortunate situation, uh, tragic, and, and just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. UBC Students Union President Cole Evans says counseling and peer-to-peer -peer support services are available, encouraging anyone struggling to reach out. It's sort of a combination of shock, sadness, um, and grief, really. And I know there's a lot of people who also want answers, too, to why this happened. Many questions remain, and for students who frequent this area, they say the road could be improved. When it gets dark here, it gets really dark because it's kind of off on the peninsula. Then again, at night, you know, if you can't even see during the best of times, uh, imagine what it's like if you're speeding or you're drunk or both. RCMP have not ruled out if speed, drugs or alcohol were factors. Now, Chris... Now, Chris, a UBC spokesperson tells me they are working with the Ministry of Transportation and the RCMP to look at ways to make this road safer. That could include protective barriers for bike lanes and uh, pathways, uh, as well as other traffic calming measures, all in an effort to make sure though a tragedy like this that we saw on the weekend doesn't happen again. Chris? All right, let's hope not. Thanks very much, Krista. 
The parents of a missing Lower Mainland woman is rene are renewing their plea for information four years after their loved one disappeared. Christina Ward was last seen in Surrey September of 2017. As Catherine Urquhart reports, her mother and father are begging anyone with any knowledge of where she might be to come forward. Another missing poster is stapled to a power pole in Surrey. Christina Ward vanished four years ago. She's so missed by our family. Is a void in our household here. Family members gathered at 144th Street and 104 Avenue in Surrey, where Ward was last seen back in September 2017. Surveillance video captured images of her walking with a man who was pushing a bicycle. They're hoping to generate tips on her whereabouts. A little something, you've seen a glimpse of my daughter or someone around her, just report it. Something that you either slightest remember. But we believe that the last person that was with her was a guy on a bike. So we do believe that he knows where she went. The RCMP say their serious crime unit has conduct of the investigation. It's a very active investigation. Um, we are uh, still um, tracking down tips, and, um, and there, are, there are some leads that we're following. Ward is Indigenous, 5'5", five 130 pounds, with curly brown hair and brown eyes, and would now be 24. Christina, if you are seeing this, you do know that we're here trying to get you home. Wherever you're at, it doesn't matter. Whoever has you, Christina, Please, just release her. Let, let us have her home. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Do not feed the animals. It's a general rule in urban parks and really anywhere. But Vancouver wants to bump up the punishment for those who break it. The vote on a new bylaw to fine those who feed wildlife next on the News Hour. One of the world's biggest car makers goes all in on electric. How Ford is planning for the future later on the News Hour. And a black bear enjoying some backyard shenanigans. That's coming up. Right now, though, following a string of coyote attacks that forced the temporary closure of Stanley Park, the Vancouver Park Board is expected to vote on a new bylaw. The rules would give its staff the power to levy some hefty fines on anyone spotted feeding the wildlife in any of the city's parks. Our Grace Key joins us live from the Park Board offices with more. And Grace, when would this new rule go into effect? Well, the earliest it could be enacted would be on August, October, excuse me, October 4th. So the Park Board Commissioners would be looking at uh, this new bylaw that would basically prohibit people from feeding wildlife both directly and indirectly. And they could be facing a $500 fine. And this would include all wildlife. So we're talking birds, amphibians and mammals. Right now, the Park Board bylaw basically says you can't deposit food or grain anywhere in the park except for garbage containers. The BC Wildlife Act does address the feeding of dangerous wildlife, but provincial enforcement officers are stretched thin. So tonight's meeting starts at 6.30. There will be a staff report. There will also be some public input and then a decision on the draft bylaw at the end. All right, we'll see uh, how they vote tonight on Global News at 11. Grace, thank you. A former Kelowna social worker accused of defrauding the government and foster children in his care out of hundreds of thousands of dollars has pleaded guilty to some of the charges against him. 
But as Jules Knox reports, it'll be months before Robert Riley Saunders learns his punishment. Robert Riley Saunders was originally facing more than a dozen charges, including 10 counts of fraud. But in a Kelowna courtroom on Monday, he quietly pleaded guilty to only three of the allegations, breach of trust, using a forged document, and fraud over $5,000. The Crown says that back in 1996, when Saunders was first hired as a social worker, he lied about having a bachelor's degree and gave the ministry a forged document to get the job. He worked with many Indigenous and high-risk children, court heard, and opened joint accounts with two dozen of those youth at banks in Kelowna. The Crown says that from 2011 to 2018, Saunders deposited more than $460,000 into those bank accounts, money meant for the youth's food and shelter, and transferred $350,000 to his own personal bank account. The rest, the prosecution says, was withdrawn in cash. With limited exceptions, none of these funds were provided to youth, the Crown says. All of the funds were misappropriated by Mr. Saunders for personal enrichment. The prosecution also noted that during the period in question, Saunders was the legal guardian for more than 60 Indigenous children and owed them the same fiduciary duty of care that is owed by a parent. While Saunders did plead guilty, the Crown and Defence do not agree to all of the facts in the case. The prosecution argues that Saunders' treatment of youth should be an aggravating factor during sentencing. The defence says it wants the Crown to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. Those facts are expected to be sorted out during a Gardiner hearing, which has been scheduled to start on March 21st. Jules Knox, Global News, Kelowna. Up next, a call to get your Christmas shopping done early. The bike industry or the toy industry is competing with the automobile industry. With the global supply chain barely functioning, how long before shelves are bare? And coming up later in sports, the Vancouver Canucks at home in Abbotsford, ready to play in front of BC fans for the first time in a long time. Good evening. It's waiting for the truck to arrive on the scene to what's left of a two-car crash here northbound at the south end of the Lions Gate Bridge. Traffic is down to a single lane both ways, seeing some pretty significant backups out of downtown Vancouver. Getting free stuff with more rewards points is easy, especially when you shop during the 20 times more rewards points event all this week at Save on Foods. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Lions Gate Bridge. Attention consumers having issues with scammers, price gougers, corner cutters, con artists, or big business bullies. Help is here. Andrewa investigates consumer matters on Global News. Christmas is still three months away, give or take a couple of days. Yet some retailers are warning you may want to start holiday shopping now. The supply chain crisis is having a huge impact on product availability and prices. With more on what you can expect going forward, let's bring in Consumer Matters reporter, Andrewa. And Thanks, Sophie. From sneakers to toys, shipping disruptions and pandemic-related factory shutdowns are causing major disruptions for all types of goods, which means that gift you were hoping to place under the tree may not arrive on time. At Reckless Bike Stores in Vancouver, a welcome surprise. Those bikes that came today, we didn't really know they were coming. Shop owner Paul Dragon says this past March, he started running out of bikes and only now product is starting to trickle in. 
It's the reason why he's encouraging customers to be flexible. Be prepared to wait. And they say, how long? We go, we don't know how long. Could be months, could be a year. We don't know. Our suppliers don't know. Global shipping disruptions from container shortages to shipping backlogs compounded by pandemic-related factory shutdowns are causing major delays getting goods into stores. IKEA Canada says it's taking extraordinary action and buying its own containers and chartering space on vessels to secure supply and meet customer demand. In this climate, patience is the name of the game. So how long are you waiting for bike parts? 90 days, 150 days, 230 days. And normally it would take how long? You place the order tomorrow, you get it in three days. It's the reason why the Village Toy Shop in Port Moody is encouraging customers to start holiday shopping now. Store owner Teresa Johansson says she's placed large orders, but only a fraction of the goods are coming in. We don't want to panic people, but we do suggest starting early, keeping your eyes out. Um, you know, if your child does mention something they're interested in, probably best to grab it now. Great colors. It's a similar story at Forerunners. Owner Peter Butler says certain brands of runners are in short supply. The Nike product is coming in inconsistently in webs and flows, and what's supposed to come in August might come in November, might be January. The sales rep doesn't even know. But one thing that is known, consumer prices are on the rise. We're going to see probably 5 to 10% inflation, at least in footwear, maybe more in certain, certain brands. That price increase is expected across the board for a number of products. Our suppliers are being charged more for containers. So that shipping container that used to cost $2,500 U.S. to get from Asia to, to North America is now $8,000, $10,000, same container. Which inevitably trickles down to the consumer. And there's no clear answer as to when these shortages will last. So the best advice to consumers, secure your items now to avoid disappointment later. Also, be flexible and know you may have to look at other options simply because the item you wanted may not be available. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. All right. Thanks, Anne. BC Cancer's renowned research center is getting a new name to honor a well-known philanthropist. The center is now called the L.J. Blackmore oh, Cancer Research Center after Leon Judah Blackmore, whose foundation has donated nearly $19 million to the BC Cancer Foundation. Blackmore was a refugee from Poland during World War II who became a successful property developer. He died in 2015, but his foundation continues to support a number of causes. He grew up with very little in terms of material things, but placed so much value in community and giving back in whatever way he could. He fought for everything he attained in life, and he appreciated the value of every dollar he earned. In 2012, I lived in Nashville for a year, and I saw a hematologist at Vanderbilt Hospital. As he walked into the room reviewing my charts, he stopped, looked up, and said, Wow, you received cancer in Vancouver, cancer care in Vancouver, BC? He proceeded to tell me about the groundbreaking research that was happening in Vancouver and all the doctors he was following. It is a great place. Sure is. Just ahead, the Green Party collapse. Uh, it has been the worst period in my life. With leader Annamie Paul out, some wonder if the party's best days are behind it. 
And top doctors offer suggestions to stop the COVID disaster in Alberta. Traffic is steady in both directions over here tonight at the Patello Bridge, where there is a bit of congestion is on the Columbia Street on-ramp, as you can see here. It's wrapped up right underneath the bridge deck. Through a new charitable partnership between Kermac Cares for Kids and Surrey Memorial Hospital, when you choose Kermac Collision and Autoglass, you also support the Surrey Memorial Children's Health Centre. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Patello Bridge. Bishops of Canada have announced they are committing $30 million to a nationwide initiative to support healing and reconciliation for residential school survivors, their families and their communities. The funding is expected to be over a five-year period and will include initiatives in every region of the country, with parishes being encouraged to participate and amplify the effort. The hope is that this can help to make a significant difference in addressing the historical and ongoing trauma caused by the residential school system. This also follows a national apology issued last Friday as part of what the National Assembly calls a long path toward healing and reconciliation. And the B.C. government is committing more money to mental health support for survivors of the residential school system. The province says Indigenous service providers will receive $1.5 million to strengthen support for survivors, their families and communities. The funding is part of the $12 million announced back in June for the B.C. Residential School Response Fund. In politics, it's a good measure of the chaos and upheaval within a political party when its leader calls her time at the helm, quote, the worst period of my life. That's how Green Party leader Annamie Paul described her term as leader today as she announced her resignation. Richard Zussman has the latest on a party in disarray. The first black leader of a federal party, the first female Jewish leader, and now the first leader from the 2021 election to call it quits. I just don't have the, the heart for it. Under attack from her own party, both before and during its unsuccessful federal election campaign, Anime Paul is out as green leader. When I was elected uh, and put in this role, I was um, breaking a glass ceiling. Um, what I didn't realize at the time is that I was breaking a glass ceiling that was going to fall on my head and leave a lot of shards of glass that I was going to have to crawl over. The 2021 election saw the collapse of the Greens, especially in B.C. Province-wide, the party going from 12.5% in 2019 to 5.4% of the vote this election. Don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. Paul says she felt she could not carry on. For all of those people who are disappointed, for all of the supporters who wrote and asked me to please continue, uh, please know that this was not easy. It has been extremely painful. Uh, it has been the worst period in my life. Now, there's the larger question for the Greens, a question of relevance, especially with virtually every federal party now putting forth a substantial climate plan. It's also just the, the scope of climate change within the platforms of the other parties, right? Everyone was talking about it more. And in places where the Greens have done well before, they struggled with Paul in charge. Elizabeth May won Saanich Gulf Islands, but she dropped 11.5% of the vote. Paul Manley lost Nanaimo Ladysmith and dropped 9% of the vote. In Victoria, the party went from second to fourth, dropping nearly 19% in the popular vote. And in West Van, Sunshine Coast, Sea to Sky, the party down nearly 16 points. Clearly, the province BC is still the sort of base of the party, uh, for the most part. Uh, but she never came out. 
here until the last week of the campaign. There's no timeline yet on when a new Green leader will be chosen. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. The COVID situation in Alberta continues to push the province's health care system to the brink of collapse. 1,063 people are being treated for the virus in hospital. 312 of them are in the intensive care. 23 more people died in the last 24 hours. Since Friday, more than 5,000 new cases of the virus have been confirmed. And province-wide, the test positivity rate is above 10%. Active cases across the province have now surpassed 21,000. That's three times more than here in B.C. Now, Alberta's former top doctor, Dr. James Talbot, and critical care doctor, Noel Gibney, penned an open letter to the Alberta government calling for increased restrictions and a more robust vaccine passport system. 58 ICU physicians from across the province sent another open letter to Albertans, warning the health system is on the verge of collapse. The Canadian Pediatric Society says more needs to be done to protect kids who can't get vaccinated and their families. And the Alberta Medical Association is calling for a fire break, shutting down everything but essential services to slow the spread of COVID-19. We're all on the edges of our seats watching the numbers every day to see how close we're going to be at uh, until we have to start denying care to people that otherwise would get it. You know, I think what we've all come to, to the conclusion is that we're out of runway, we're out of time. And if we don't do something drastic, we're going to end up in a drastic situation. Alberta's health minister says the province has already put in sufficient measures to bend the curve and protect the health system. One of the world's biggest automakers gives up on gas. Now we're on the cusp of a revolution. How Ford is accelerating the shift to electrification. And what a treat for Canucks fans in the Valley. Their first game back in B.C. tonight in Abbotsford. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. At various times today, mm -hmm. didn't it feel like the rain was going to come through oh, yes. the roof? Absolutely. So loud. It's going to flood my car. <laughs> Basements. I can't find my um, my rain boots, my my wellies. Uh oh. I know. Bad time for it. But look. I know. I don't know what's going on out there right now, Christy. I know. It, what a day, I'll tell you. And um, we had so many photos of rainbows coming in because as you were just talking about, we had heavy rain. The kind of day you don't want to leave the uh, window open uh, in your car, that's for sure. But then all of a sudden the sun came out and now we're getting all these photos of rainbows. So here's a quick look at some of your photos. Thank you to everyone who shares them with us. This first one from Delta. Thank you so much to Linda for that one. And another one from Surrey. Thank you to Jesse for that one. And another one from Langley. We even saw one here from uh, the North region. So uh, what we're seeing is these pockets, an unstable air mass. So you get breaks, but then you also get these really intense cells that are rolling through. And uh, there is a band across Tofino right now, a couple lightning strikes there as well. There actually has been quite a few lightning strikes around that region throughout the day. But uh, that just gives you a good indication that as we head into the evening hours, we're not done with these pockets of rain, despite the fact that we are seeing some sunshine right now. So that chance of rain staying high overnight and through the morning hours tomorrow. So tomorrow morning, you'll need your rain jacket, 
but in the afternoon, things will ease. Similar to what we're seeing today, we'll start to see more breaks of blue sky and less shower activity, but we still do have a risk of thunderstorms. So very unstable still tomorrow. There's tomorrow morning with the majority of that uh, rainfall across the lower mainland region, more breaks of blue sky for those of you across Vancouver Island. And then in the afternoon, things start to break up a little bit. Can you see that band though off in the distance? Yes, that's your Wednesday, right back into it on Wednesday uh, with periods of rain. So some nice breaks of blue sky, especially for the interior, central interior right there down through the southern interior tomorrow, but still that slight risk of a shower and a thunderstorm. And for our region, rainfall in the morning, easing to just a chance of showers with a risk of thunderstorms. And you likely won't see some breaks of blue sky in through the Fraser Valley tomorrow. will be more towards uh, the western section. So Wednesday, Thursday also looking wet, but looks like we come out of it on Friday and Saturday, the weekend looking pretty nice as well. So lots to look forward to in the long range. Once again, another photo of a rainbow. Thank you to everyone who shares a photo. This one is a stunning one. Thank you to Melissa for that one from Misuyus, uh, that rainbow over our anarchist mountain there. Looks like there'll be a pot of gold there, that's for sure. <laughs> Let's go look. <laughs> awesome. Thanks very much, Christy. All right. Uh, front yard in Port Coquitlam turned into a personal playground for a black bear this weekend. Brad sent us this video of the curious creature trying out his swing on Saturday evening. The bear stuck around for about 15 minutes of playtime before moving on. It was uh, obviously more interested in chewing on the rope instead of actually moving itself into proper swinging position <laughs> to really uh, make full use of that gear. So it'd be a lot to ask for Black Bear to do that, but you know, they're very <laughs> clever. They're very clever. They it, can do all kinds of things. It'll figure it out at some point and mm -hmm. it'll be back, I'm sure. But it actually makes them more frightening <laughs> if they began to figure out how to swing on the swing. Then what else could they learn? They know yep. how to open up car doors. Yeah. Well. Yeah, if the car door is open. But then, you know, maybe they know how to pick locks after a while. Come in, start watching TV, you know. Netflix. Yeah, making dinner with a stove, all those things. You don't want them to learn these types of things. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, among those playing in tonight's exhibition game for the Vancouver Canucks is rookie Vasily Podkolzin. With Pods, I think he's going to step in and, and, uh, and be... And be be great right away. He already has a hockey nickname, Pods. Mm -hmm, anyway, uh, we'll talk about him tonight as Jay is down at the rink. All right, thanks very much, Squire. And Ford's new Model T moment, spending billions to transform its business for an electrified future. Hi, Squire. How you doing? He's right over there. That's why I was looking over there. How are you? <laughs> you almost reach out and touch him. But I won't because we maintain our distance. That's true. <laughs> very smart of you. All right, Canucks. Uh, okay, yes, Canucks. After playing a lot of the minor leaguers last night in that game down in Spokane against Seattle, the Canucks will have more regulars tonight in Abbotsford when they face the Calgary Flames. I don't think the Flames are bringing in many of their regulars. Gaudreau, Monaghan, Kachuk, Marks from Tanev, not here. The uh, Canucks will have their two former Arizona Coyotes tonight, Connor Garland and Oliver ekman Larson, plus Bo Horvat, J.T. Miller, and the most watched rookie in camp, 
And with more on that, here is Jay. It's the second preseason game for the Vancouver Canucks. Last night they were in Spokane taking on the Seattle Kraken. Tonight they are in Abbotsford taking on the Calgary Flames. It's the first time that the Vancouver Canucks have played in front of their home fans since March of 2020. 18 months have passed since fans have been able to watch the Vancouver Canucks. And tonight they'll get to see the debut of Vasily Podkolzin. What's your message to Vasily tonight? Just play. Enjoy it. I think with... Uh... All young players, that's kind of the message that uh, we do tell them is don't overthink things. Go out and play your game. And It's hard to say don't be nervous because that's just natural. Everyone's nervous on their first time they play in an NHL game, even if it's exhibition. When they all come over, I find that they have tremendous skill and, and, and <clears throat> you know, can step into the NHL game and, and, and make an impact right away. So... Um, you know, with uh, with pods, I think he's going to step in and and uh, and be and be, be great right away. I think, you know, obviously it's going to take him a little bit to get used to things, but um, you know, he's big, he's strong, um, he's got an extremely hard work ethic. I think it's going to get him a long way. You'll see a different lineup for the Vancouver Canucks than the one that played last night in Spokane against the Seattle Kraken. Will Lockwood will play for the second consecutive night, as will defenseman Ole Ulevi. And Jack Rathbone. Rathbone was very good for the Vancouver Canucks. He's caught the attention of Travis Green. So has Ole Ulevi, but for all the wrong reasons. Green, not impressed with what he's seen thus far from Ole Ulevi at training camp. We'll see what he does tonight in the preseason. It's also the first game for Oliver ekman Larson. And if the veteran defenseman had his way, he'd play every preseason game. I mean, I, I would love to play all of them. Uh, uh, it's a lot of fun to, to play games, and, and that's why we, we do this. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's it's good to get in in some games right away and, and get a, get used to that. And it's a little bit uh, uh, different than than practicing and stuff. Michael DiPietro gets the start tonight in Abbotsford. Archer Silas will be backing him up, and then following tonight's game, the Canucks will have a few days off before they resume the preseason against the Calgary Flames on Friday. Covering the Vancouver Canucks training camp, Jay Janor, Global Sports. Now, before the game, the Canucks will be wearing orange in the warm-up to recognize National Truth and Reconciliation Week. They were also wearing orange shirts at the pregame skate and in the pregame press conference. And Captain Bo Horvat feels it was important the Canucks did that. You know, the shirt speaks for itself. And, um, you know, I think today is a day that we reflect on, on what, ha- what happened and, and the lives that were lost. And, um, you know, again, every child matters, and uh, I think it's important that um, you know people realize that and people talk about it today. Well, who is to blame for the Seattle Seahawks' one and two start this season? Is it the offense? Is it the defense? Is it both? One thing is for sure: it's not the first half Seahawks that are the problem; it's the second half Seahawks. Because in their three games this year, the offense has scored. Seven second-half points in Week 1, six in Week 2, and zero against Minnesota yesterday. In the last two games, though, the Seahawks' defense couldn't stop the run game in the second half. Minnesota didn't score a second-half touchdown yesterday, but they didn't need to. You know, you'd ask me before and say, hey, you give up nine points in the second half. How would you feel about that? Well, I would have felt pretty good about it, but not, not the way it happened because our offense wasn't able to, uh, to get on the field. You know, the three long drives I mentioned, I think it was a five, a seven, and an eight-something. You know, those were, those were long possessions, and uh, we're sitting there waiting. You know, and, and I think the offense had the ball twice and got the ball back with four minutes, 4.30 in the game. And so we got to work together much better than that. And, and uh, you know, that's, it's, it just tells the story, unfortunately. 
The house that Jerry built in Dallas. Cowboys and Philadelphia Eagles. Cowboys up 7-0 when whoops. What happens here? Zach Prescott, or Dak Prescott, make that, drops the ball in his own end zone. Fletcher Cox gets the touchdown. But the Cowboys were much better in the first half despite that miscue. Here's Prescott to Dalton Schultz. And it's uh, 20 nothing. Make that 20 to 7 at halftime for Dallas. This has not happened since 1976 in Major League Baseball. A brother hitting a home run off his brother. Bradley Zimmer hits a home run off his brother Kyle. Last time this happened was 1976 with the Negro Brothers. It's only happened four times since 1900 in Major League history. Yikes. There you go. That's amazing. Brother versus brother. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you, Squire. Up next, a different kind of American revolution, this one in the automotive industry. Well, Ford revolutionized the car industry more than a century ago, and the company believes it is poised to do it again. Ford's investing billions of dollars to transition away from engines that burn gasoline and focus instead on electric vehicles. Tom Costello shows us why the company feels it's the right thing to do. 113 years after the Model T first hit the road, they're going to love it. Henry Ford's great grandson, Chairman Bill Ford, says this is Ford's new Model T moment. Because everything's changing. If my great grandfather saw our industry five years ago, it would be very recognizable to him. Now we're on the cusp of a revolution. And Ford is betting big on the revolution, spending another $11 billion to build new plants in Tennessee and Kentucky and hiring 11,000 new workers. Outside Memphis, an all-new carbon-neutral campus producing electric vehicles, their batteries, and recycling systems. Near Louisville, Kentucky, two new battery plants to power trucks and SUVs. More jobs and investments in existing Michigan plants. And new job training in Texas, and beyond. Henry Ford invented the assembly line more than 100 years ago, but this is the prototype for the next assembly line. A robot moves the vehicle along. If something goes wrong, they don't shut down the assembly line. The robot can simply make a detour. Tonight, Ford is pledging a Made in America stamp on its EVs. What would your great-grandfather say today about your new Model T for the 21st century? I think he'd say what took you so long. How quickly will we see most vehicles on the road battery powered? Ford says that's really up to how quickly the consumer buys into the electric vehicle. But General Motors says it wants to get rid of gasoline engines by 2035. I notice, yeah, it's hard to find a spot at the Chargers here nowadays, so lots of people at Global uh, getting on that electric train. I know, I hogged one all day, sorry. (laughs) All right, final word on the weather, Christy. Thanks so much. So yes, a little bit of blue sky as you can see behind me here, but we still do have rainfall in the forecast overnight and through the morning hours. Tomorrow becomes spottier in the afternoon, but we do have a risk of thunderstorms also. A wet couple of days before the sun comes out on Friday. All right. Thanks, Gordo. Have a good night, everyone. Good night, all.